Our Three Cents is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, please go to greenlitpodcasts.com. Hello and welcome to a very special bonus episode of Our Three Cents, a podcast celebrating the wonders of video games. My name is Jonathan Dunn and I'm joined, as always, by my childhood friend, Chris Dow. Pack your bags. And joining us remotely, displaced by space and time, is my adulthood friend Minty Booth, who I shall be splicing into the episode through the wonders of editing. And for this episode today, we are looking at all things sequels in the world of video games. And because of that, we have increased our numbers and we are thrilled to welcome to the show the hosts of the podcast Sequelcast 2 and Friends, Alex Miller and Will Thrasher. We can give you magic. <laughs> we can also give you a pod code. <laughs> so Sequel Cast 2 and Friends is a fellow Greenlit Podcast Network podcast, and it's dedicated to discussion on movie sequels and franchises that have spawned several entries in their series. I was recently welcomed onto the show to talk about the first instalment in the Hobbit trilogy, and I mean, I had a really fun time chatting through the, I mean, the good, the bad, and the worst elements of that film with you guys. And uh, it's it's really, really great to have you on the show now in return. It was good to have you. So let's start, as we always do with our guests, and ask you, what games are you playing at the moment? Alex, why don't you take us away with what, what's uh, what's currently in your console? If that's not too, too much of a personal question. <laughs> the last console I hooked up and actually played was my Nintendo 64, which I'm happy to report is in fully functional condition. Lovely. Always happy to rock out some GoldenEye and Perfect Dark. Thank you, Expansion Pack, circa 1999. <laughs> 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 and also, I've, I've been playing a lot of, uh, I like to uh, backslide to some emulator stuff as well as some games on uh, Steam Goat Simulator being being one of my favourites. What a classic. All those goats simulating everywhere. I know, right? How about you, Thrasher? What's uh, what's uh, currently um, occupying your thumbs? Well, I got I got the boring answer and the exciting answer. The boring answer is uh, Ring Fit for the Switch. Oh, yeah. Which has, has surprisingly been fun and has turned into a workout uh, on, on a number of occasions. The fun answer... I have been playing the uh, new console version of the board game Space Hulk for the Xbox. Ooh. I've seen the board game. I haven't seen the video game version. It's a Warhammer 40,000 one, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is. And it's pretty... And having played the board game, it it pretty much just is the board game in 3D to, like, to the point where, like, when you attack the the Gene Stealers, you can actually... Like, there's a mission log. You can go in the mission log and it will tell you what dice your Space Marine rolled to make the attack. Wow. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. I'm a big fan of um, of board games. It's, It's always nice when there's, like, a good video game version of a board game that comes out. But, you know, I mean, I, I, I love the tactile nature of board games, but certainly in uh, in lockdown for the last, what is it, seven, going on seven years now, I think, um, <laughs> where, 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 you know, we haven't been able to meet up with friends and play board games. It has been really nice to sort of actually have some uh, some some digital versions and, and things like a tabletop simulator uh, as well to play, like, well, literally all the board games through. Oh, yeah. Very, very good stuff. Lovely. So, sequels are a funny thing. In the realm of movies, it's very rare for a sequel to be as good as the original, and even rarer for a sequel to actually surpass the original. Like, film sequels have the benefit of, like, hitting the ground running. They don't need to waste the first act establishing characters and settings because, you know, the first film will have already done that. You know, unless the film series is branching off on a whopping tangent or, I don't know, like exploring a whole other area of its world. Tokyo Drift. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's a Fast and the Furious one, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think with it, you don't need any prior knowledge of any of those films. I mean, literally, that, and that, that goes for when you're watching the film as well. If you forget suddenly what happened like 20 minutes ago, you're probably fine. You can yeah, probably catch yeah. up. But like classic movie sequels that have been both critically and commercially successful can be counted on the fingers of very few hands. You know, you got Godfather Part Two, Empire Strikes Back, Terminator Two, Aliens, Aliens. Yeah, some others, some others. But in the realm of video games, it's an entirely different story. And because games take so long to make, and because the advances in technology will have progressed so much between two installments of a game, it allows developers to raise the bar 
fairly easily with a video game sequel, especially if they're not just churning games out, you know, for the same generation of consoles, but, like, embracing the additional hardware power of a new suite of machines to play with as well. Like, the groundwork for the games, their, their core engines have already been built, and so they can just be as creative as they want with exploring where else their games could go. And because video games are an interactive medium... Like developers can continue to refine the player experience rather than just, you know, try and up the ante of, you know, of all the elements in an original movie that people loved and just doing more of that. You know, that's actually, you know, whilst it, yeah, it is, it is on, on paper, you know, doing more of what people love. It's not actually changing that audience experience because it's, it's just the same, you know, in fact, it's lessened because they've already seen it once before. <laughs> so... We've all prepared some thoughts on sequels in video games. The sequels that worked, sequels that didn't, and the sequels that that haven't been uh, as, as we look towards the future of, of, of games that we would love to see sequels of. And I'm going to kick us off because I've been talking not enough, it seems. Uh, I'm going to kick us off uh, talking about a sequel that, that I think is a shining example of how to do a follow-up in, in a video game. Now... I've spoken about several sequel games on the podcast quite recently, including most recently talking about Pokemon Gold, the first sequel in the Pokemon series. And I'm not giving any spoilers, but there, there, there may yet still be a sequel or two more to come in my list. But I was, I was trying to think of, of like what a great example of a sequel is, not just a sequel that I love or one that's been critically acclaimed, one that really takes everything that was done in the original, builds on it, and also creates something entirely fresh and exciting. And that's why I think Portal 2 may be the best example of how to make a video game sequel. Like the original Portal game was essentially, it was a proof of concept for a fantastically revolutionary first person puzzle setup. Think using portals, you know, that's what the trailer asked you to do. And that concept was, was fantastic. And the game seemingly explored all the permutations of that puzzling setup that there were to be explored. You know, it's as if the developers went, how about this for a cool idea? Here it is. There's cake. The end. <laughs> Isn't Portal 2 like Guillermo del Toro's like favorite game of all time or something like that? Yeah. And I mean, a lot of people have cited it as like almost like, a, you know, an ignored classic uh, or like an ignored masterpiece, because I think it, you know, it did go under people's radar. And when I've looked at like top 100 lists of like the best games on PC, I've seen like Portal 2 come out right on top. And that's that's extraordinary. I mean, but then, I mean, I was I was initially quite sceptical about Portal 2 because I thought, you know, how were they going to expand on what I thought was a complete package in Portal 1? You know, were they just going to create a bunch of insanely hard puzzles that carried on in the same vein as the original? Sort of like, you know, like the Lost Levels in for Super Mario Brothers. Like, I didn't know if I wanted that. Like, it would just be, well, that would be like playing the first game again, but just being more miserable doing it, I think. <laughs> And I, I was thrilled with what I got, because not only do they set up the concept that you're revisiting this world from the first game, it then literally has you breaking out of the box, I mean, metaphorically and physically, as you're then trying to escape the Aperture Labs with the help of Stephen Merchant in what is possibly the best piece of video game voice acting there's ever been. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you're using all the things you learn in a controlled experimental setting in the first game. But now it's, it feels like you're making those things applicable in the real world, and it's just it's just a great ride from start to finish. Like I, I thought that the runtime of the first game, which was about five hours or something, four or five hours, I thought that was perfect because it felt like you explored all the different puzzles, it didn't overstay its welcome, and it wrapped it up with a nice song. But <laughs> I didn't expect Portal 2 to be as entertaining and fun as it was for like four or five times that length of play and to introduce even more concepts to the puzzling with like different types of goo and paint that would make you run faster and bounce and all of that sort of stuff. Well, the other thing I think that makes Portal 2 such an exceptional sequel is, you know, the original Portal, it's very purposefully a very sort of bland and clinical setting. You're just yes. in that laboratory the whole time. The only little glimpses of personality and flair you get are from the little snatches of graffiti you will sometimes come across. Yeah. And the artificial intelligence. But Portal 2 has so much personality with, with Stephen Merchant as Wheatley, with, with the artificial intelligence, with the recordings you find of Cave Johnson. Yeah. The game itself has character, and that, that is so valuable to the experience. Absolutely. And I'm not surprised there hasn't been a Portal 3, 
because like even though I thought Portal One was complete until I saw Portal Two, it could be that there is a Portal Three in development alongside Half Life Three. I mean, sure, why not? But you know, as far as I'm concerned, there doesn't need to be a Portal Three because you know Portal Two, you know, it did it, it completed it. How about you then, Thrasher? Let's hand over to you. What is your favorite example of a sequel in video games? Well, when we were doing prep for this, it, it occurred to me that as far as like good game, amazing sequel, terrible sequel, I could just talk <laughs> about Dead Space as a trilogy. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I'm not going to do that because I don't want to just talk about Dead Space, though there's a lot of things to talk about in that area. Though if you want to talk about Dead Space, feel free to have me on for that. <laughs> but if I'm going to look you know, at all of my history with video games, if I was just to distill just a just the essence of a great video game sequel i think i would have to come up with super metroid ah yeah which very nice aside from you know being that you know that jump from you know the original metroid is 8 bit this is 16 bit the fact that it refines so many classic gameplay elements that are present in the original metroid it's also kind of unique because it's Super Metroid is the third game in the series. It, it, it comes after Metroid 2 for the Game Boy, which is largely yeah. forgotten. I don't ever yeah. hear anyone talk about Metroid 2. No, I mean, not certainly not until it was remade for the 3DS, which is absolutely fantastic. But, mm. I mean, you can't do a side-by-side comparison of them. It, you know, it may as well be a, a totally new game for, for, for what it's worth. It was actually funny because my cousin had Super Metroid, and that was my introduction to Metroid in general. <laughs> so I just thought that was the game. Mm. I didn't know there was a there was a Metroid, you know. <laughs> yeah. I was just introduced. So uh, for and for uh, like you said, for a 16-bit, it's really immersive and a very expansive game. And I mean, it still holds up wonderfully. And the other interesting thing about uh, about Super Metroid is that there are there are things done in that game that I'm not sure I've ever seen done in another <laughs> game. Just like little mm. things, you know, because you talk about how you go into like different environments and how at one point a, a whole section of the game takes place in these sea caves, and the way you interact with your environment completely changes. Until, of course, you can get the gravity sphere that lets you sort of move through the water as if you were going through a normal level, but like. There's that whole subsection of the game where you have to break into a crashed spaceship, but because yeah. the spaceship is crashed, everything in that part of the game is slanted about 30 degrees to the left. Mm. That just creates such a wonderful feeling of being in this crashed, broken down environment and all the implied storytelling that's in the environment. Like It's a game with a prologue. You play a prologue <laughs> on a space station that's falling apart and rocking and the levels are self-destructing. But once you get into the meat of the game, that before you get to the first boss, right before the entrance to that boss fight, you find a wrecked suit of powered armor. Mm, yeah. It's almost like yours, but blue, and it's got little, like, scavengers on it that you scare away when you approach it, and that's when you oh, notice yeah. that it's like your armor. And that creates such a palpable sense of fear. They're like, the last person to get here had all the same weapons I had, and they're dead! What am I going <laughs> to do? Absolutely brilliant. So then, over to you, Alex. What's been your favorite sequel as a video game? Or, or what do you think is the best example of, of how it's been done well? So I had to, I had to think about this for a minute. Because, I mean, ah, there's so many to choose from. There's so many different platforms and era eras in time. But after giving it due consideration, I would have to say, for a few strange reasons, but I'm going to have to go with Super Mario 2. Oh. The Gonzo one. Because what happened, it's one of the few times where a video game, where something that happened in a video game is what happens a lot with movie sequels, is that they'll take something else and say, well, oh shit, this Mario thing was really successful, let's get another one in the works, and basically do a facelift of Mario onto this other game that's completely (laughs) different in every which way, and try to shoehorn some Mario stuff in there. You know, you got some plumbing references and stuff, but mostly you have potions and bead shooting walkers and all this red logs and you can fly sometimes it's just such a cracker jack whacked out game and i always love playing i mean it's like a lewis carroll story you just fall out of a (laughs) door in midair you know what i mean (laughs) it's like how do you collect coins in this well you throw a bottle of potion on the ground a door appears you cross into that door and it's nighttime and you pull coins out of the ground by yanking up these roots (laughs) i mean that makes perfect sense right it is so it's such a weird it is such a weird game and it was possibly i think i think i've said this on the podcast before i think it was the first mario game i owned because i got it as super mario advance on my game boy advance oh. and 
I was playing it and thinking, I, I didn't think this is what Mario was. Right, yeah. Yeah, and I was like, I, I'm sure there was, but I'm sure if you jump on things, they're meant to squash and... Do- Hell of a lot of turnips. <laughs> there's, like, there's more yeah, turnips I than I was led to believe there would be. I'll be honest. <laughs> I was vying up talking about this for my worst example of a sequel. I'm so, yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. purely because it may as well be like an anthology game. You know, like how Image and Form have done with their Steam World games. Right. Uh, it, it may as well have been like, oh, this is Mario. This is just a, a totally different Mario game, like Mario RPG or Paper Mario and all those. Yeah, it Mario may as well or be like, right. Yeah, like it's that different. It's very strange. It's very it- strange. It's a strange thing to have happened for like. Like I, I would have loved, I'd love to see the conversations that happened that led to that coming out. Well, I think the conversation was, we have to get a new Mario game out by Christmas. What do you got? <laughs> yeah, well, it was funny. We had this like whole half baked theory when we were kids, and that was so. This was the theory is that Mario came out, and he, you know, it was a huge success, and then all of the creators just went like on this like rock star bender and just were taking all these psychedelics and that's what got Mario. that's why mario 2 is the way it is and then yeah. <laughs> so yeah that's like their you know la woman sergeant peppers right like the psychedelic wacky move and then yeah. you know and then they get they clean up their act and then mario 3 was like their apology <laughs> like, all right guys let's get sober get our get back on track and like really hit it out of the park yeah. But uh, of course that wasn't the case, but that was a much more interesting narrative, I guess, to like a eight-year-old, 10-year-old. Absolutely. I, c- I can definitely imagine them going, hey guys, do you know what's, uh, do you know what's even cooler than mushrooms? Turnips. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, Mario 2 is such a weird game in concept, execution, in its history, and yet it did go on to like influence the Mario canon. Like the fact yeah. that Luigi is taller than Mario that is first introduced in this game. The fact yeah. that Luigi jumps differently than Mario. That was first introduced in this yeah. game. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you know what, yeah. dude? This is like the Mission Impossible Two of Mario. Like it's <laughs> it's like the worst regarded Mario game, but also one of the most important in developing it. I I'm totally on board with that analogy. Yeah, yeah. No problem with that at all. Right down to the symmetrical front teeth. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, how about you then? What game's done it right for you in terms of sequeling? Well, looking back over my list, there's actually quite a lot of sequels, like picking a, picking through what I've already talked about. And I've cheated a bit. There's basically there's three games I want to highlight as sequels that improved upon their initial releases in every conceivable way. You know, three games where the first entry in the series was pretty average, and then the sequel just stepped up across the board. So I think the best sequels I've talked about so far for that reason are Um Umjamalami as a sequel to Parappa the Rapper. Oh, yeah. Time Splitters 2 as a sequel to, obviously, Time Splitters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Burnout 2 as well. Nice. Because in each case, I think the games they followed were probably like six out of tens at best. You know, Parappa was was charming and quite original for the time, but it had no replay value. You could beat (laughs) beat the game within an hour and then there wasn't really a reason to go back to it. Yeah, that was a rental game. Yeah, definitely, yeah. for sure. Time Spitters was, was a really good multiplayer game early in the PlayStation 2's life, but just felt really bare bones when being played solo, which is what I was trying to do when I picked it up. And and Burnout as well was a totally functional arcade racer, but it was just quite boring. It had no character to it at all. Mm. And then when these sequels came out, Umjamalami added like a proper musicality to the music game that Parappa was just missing entirely. It, it remixed stages in several ways to make returning for better ranks feel worthwhile and fresh each time. And and I think the fact that the game allows you to play each of Lamy's stages as Parappa, as like an unlockable at the end in a more traditional rap battle, it's, it's just like a throwaway thing you get given as a reward for getting a certain amount of ranks. And it kind of shows how paltry the original was in comparison, that basically the entire original game or concepts of the original game is just a freebie in this. Time Splitters 2, I think, is one of the juiciest, most generous games of, of that generation and, and easily one of the defining console first-person shooters for the era. You know, it was still just as expansive for, for multiplayer. You could have great parties with people playing the original or its sequel, but it was just stuffed with so much to do if you were a Billy No Mates like me <laughs> that it, it would last you for, for months and months and months. It was, it was really, really great. And then Burnout 2, it added the thing that was missing from that first game. It just, it had a proper sense of self and character. And it was still about driving fast. It was still about going on the wrong side of the road. But everything had been reconsidered just enough to make the game better from start to finish. So races and events were much shorter, more punchy. 
aesthetic choices like intense speed blur and the use of those audio filters to like muffle the sound when you're driving really quickly it all made you feel like you were genuinely breaking the sound barrier and the first game never really captured that and then finally obviously the crash mode in that game would define the entire series from that point on so I, i think for those three games they're just masterful sequels. I, I think they really do take everything that the kind of design document first games put out and just improve on them entirely. To round this section off, let us hand over to Minty Booth. Uh, M- M- Mr. Minty, uh, come in. Hello, everyone. I'm talking to you from a better place. Tenby. For me, a good sequel builds upon the established mechanics of the original piece of media that came before it. It expands it, it refines it, it polishes it. It leaves you thinking, ah, yes, this is the pinnacle of this idea, the logical conclusion, and perhaps the best it will be. With this in mind, I have to say, the best video game sequel is, or at least the best one that isn't a spoiler for the main R3 Sense series at the time of recording, is Paper Mario, The Thousand Year Door. Visually almost identical to the original N64 game, GameCube Polish. Crisp 2D characters in a serviceable 3D world. We love it. Combat enhanced with uh, giving your partners a greater role in battle with their own health bar. Uh, The audience with their role in accumulating star power and items. Even the stage itself when it comes to hazardous terrain. Side quests, a story that takes you to outer space and pits you against millennia old demons. The Cave of Trials, utterly sublime takes everything that the game, the original game did well and elevates it. Just wonderful. So, I mean, here on R3 Sense, we, we don't like to be negative, but there, there are often things we can learn from bad games. Chris learned recently from Balan Wonderworld. <laughs> I don't know, actually, because you actually seem to enjoy it, which is, I mean, you're clearly relentlessly positive. What is the worst example of a sequel you've played, Chris? Oh, well... You and and Minty both know that I'm a big fan of rhythm games. And I think that Guitar Hero Smash Hits, which was one of the latter day rushed out the door sequels, add-ons, whatever you want to call it. I think that was one of the crappiest follow-ups I've ever played in any series. Mm. And and I think for, for lots of reasons, like at the time, Activision had just reached peak greed and, and the series had been annualized for, for quite a while at that point. But in the year that Smash Hits came out in 2009, we got Guitar Hero 4, Guitar Hero Van Halen, Band Hero, <laughs> Smash Hits, and Guitar Hero Metallica in one year. So, so there was never more than about two months in between releases. And even for me, as someone who bought all the music games, this was a bit much. <laughs> I, I could have picked from a few of those, to be honest, that year, to represent the very worst of what this series would, would go on to represent. But Smash Hits, for me, always felt really egregious because on paper, it took songs that were in Guitar Hero 1, 2, 3 and Guitar Hero rocks the 80s. And the idea was that they would be modernized by placing them in the full band setup that was was kind of what Guitar Hero was doing at the time. So it added support for drums and, and vocals and whatever else and whatever was customary at the point. But because they were pumping out this many games, Smash Hits got farmed out to a third-party developer. So <laughs> the note charts in the game just didn't make any sense in places. <laughs> the, the difficulty was boosted to stupid levels to try and keep those who could play through the fire and flames blindfolded happy (laughs) even though you know that that was a very small portion of the people who wanted to play a new guitar hero game (laughs) the online net code at the time was broken like i remember going for achievements that were like to win x amount of games online hitting the threshold again and again and again and just not being rewarded for it oh god and and worse for me as well like because it was driven by licensing it left out a lot of what were the kind of the stone cold classics from the games it drew from and, and settled with a lot of subpar choices, presumably because it was easier to get the license paid up. Mm. The best example of why I dislike this game so much, though, and I think it really does represent just what this was as a product, Slayer's Raining Blood was in Guitar Hero 3, and it was in Smash Hits. When it returns here, it's got such a lazy note chart, you know, as was standard for a lot of these songs. But at the very end of the song, it's got kind of a big, a big silly breakdown. And then it's got a point that's just meant to be the calm at the end of the storm, just like a held chord. And in this version, it asks you to play a chord that uses all five buttons on the neck with your four <laughs> fingers. And, and, and yeah, it's, it's possible. You can kind of grip the whole thing with your fist if you really need to. But it's, it's so ugly and silly. And the game, it's just, it's just dumb. It's really dumb. And I think it's not a surprise that it was only really like a year or two later that Rhythm Games just, that was kind of it. Because 
on both sides that the Guitar Hero franchise and the Rock Band franchise, there was too much there at that point. That it was just total market saturation that every household had 15 plastic guitars and eight plastic drum sets. And everyone had like a, a total condo style clear out at the same time <laughs> and everything just ended up in landfill. Goodness, yeah. You know, if Smash Hits was the, the punctuation at the end of that really exciting time. You know, just like movies, the, you know, developers get cash grabby and then they yeah. start putting out yeah. crap and it's like, you know, the bubble bursts. Yeah, that's, that's totally it. And like you said, it gets to a difficulty point where it's like, it's like that great South Park episode or it's like, you know, you're not far from just being able to just play it on a guitar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So, yeah. You're, you're dangerously close to becoming a musician, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so at the height of the, the rock band and guitar hero mania, it just occurred to me that those like plastic guitar controllers were just ubiquitous. And it always seemed so strange that no third party ever developed their own game that would use the existing guitar as its mm. interface. Like I was always like shocked. I was like, well, why isn't there a game where like you're like a bard in a fantasy kingdom and yeah. when you want to do yeah. something magical, you just play on your rock band guitar and you can make magic things happen in the game. <laughs> yeah, I'd play that. The only one that I played, there was um, a game called Sequence, like a, an indie game. Hmm. And it was it was meant to be kind of like an RPG mixed with a, a rhythm game, essentially. And it did let you use different controllers. So it just had essentially like five generic lanes that you were you were pressing either buttons on a pad or it did support like using a guitar controller or a drum set or whatever. Wow. But because it wasn't it wasn't designed specifically for that purpose, it never felt quite right. So it was kind of a magnanimous idea, but not really delivered upon yeah i mean you do still obviously you see people playing like dark souls on a dance mat or you know uh, the donkey conga bongos <laughs> yeah thank goodness thank goodness for um well, i never thought i'd say this but thank goodness for people <laughs> <laughs> it is strange like, i i've played donkey conga with bongo with the bongos and even mm. then whenever someone talks about it it sounds made up i have to take a moment to <laughs> yeah. remind myself that that was real Alex, how about you? What uh, What's the worst example of a sequel you've played? So it took me a while to arrive at one of the best video game sequels, <laughs> or in my opinion. This one didn't take me very long at all, and that was Mortal Kombat Mythology's Sub-Zero for the 64. Oh, oh that's a stinker, wow. isn't it? This is just rough in every sense of the word, and like... <laughs> You know, they knew how to market that, man. Like, I was like, what, 12, 13, you know, perfect age for a Mortal Kombat game. And Sub-Zero, that's like the coolest one, aside from Raiden. <laughs> so yeah, I'm like, oh, this is going to be awesome. And then, you know, there should have been a warning sign because I bought it used, like the day it came out. <laughs> 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 Never a good sign. <laughs> and I got it, and I was like, I think after, like, I really tried to convince myself that this was cool. I mean, the gameplay was just nearly impossible. It was like a puzzle side scroller with a very to little to no fighting. And like, I remember I tried to psych myself up. I'm like, oh, look at the background. That's cool. Look at that graphics on that spinning wind vane. You know what I mean? I'm, like, <laughs> I'm trying so hard. I'm like, oh man, this this sucks. I just wasted like forty bucks. I mean, we all we all did that when like we had when we had games as kids because it's not like you, you didn't have disposable income. You couldn't just go out and buy another game. Like I remember, right. I, I spoke on the podcast not too long ago about when I got Carmageddon, oh. which is a great game, yeah. but I got it on the Game Boy Color, and <laughs> uh, and I and I I spent several weeks playing it, convincing myself it was as good as the PC version for, you know, I had enough money to buy something else and then I think I've still got my copy of it somewhere. It's probably like, I probably yeah. tried to trade it in and they went, no, sorry, we, get, we don't accept actual shit. <laughs> get it framed. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, like I, when I got Rainbow Six for Game Boy Color, yeah, that was just... Oh, yeah. I, I was like, oh, cool, I can choose a 9mm and a silencer and it's like, you know, you're all... <laughs> it's, it was so stupid, but oh, brother, I tried. I was like, this is awesome. And no, it's not. <laughs> my brother had the sub zero and and i tried to play it on several occasions and the thing that drove me nuts is that it is essentially a platformer except it handles like a fighting game <laughs> but one of the things about a fighting game is you don't like change direction when you move yeah. but in a platformer <laughs> you do so in this yeah. game if you if oh someone's attacking me from the left i'm moving left but my back is still to them what the hell is going on i would have to 
every time I needed to turn around, I would have to reteach myself how to turn around. <laughs> there was like a, a button you would press to turn from left to right, and you could never find that button when you needed it. Oh, yeah. But also, too, the, so much of that game does that was hinged on jumping to perfect locations. Like, you had to, like, line yourself up and, like, take a deep breath and be like, okay, I'm going to hit right C and trigger and joystick up at the same time. I'm going to land on this little platform, then I have to do that three more times. And then the first four times you just, you just fall off the screen and die. And it was like these, yeah, these cool looking, kind of cool looking environments. I'll give it that much, but you couldn't interact with them in any way. Cause again, what are the movements in Mortal Kombat? Well, you can jump and you can strafe one direction and you can kind of do a tumbly jump backwards. <laughs> and that was the gameplay. So it was like tumbly jump, tumbly jump, fall off a platform and die. And yeah, it was just a game that just didn't want you to have any fun. <laughs> it was funny because there was this, these kids I used to babysit these family friends. They got a 64. So like, I gave them a couple of my older games. I gave them like Mario and stuff. Every time I'd go to a babysitter or whatever, they're like, oh, you got to beat this level for me. You got to beat this level for me. <laughs> and then one day I got picked up. The dad was driving me over and they're like, you got to beat this game for the kids. They're going nuts. I'm like, oh, it's like Mario, <laughs> Pokemon Snap. They're like, no, it's the Sub-Zero thing. I'm like, oh, why are they playing that? I can't beat that. Oh, oh man. And they were so into it, though. It was like this suspenseful like buildup for them. They're like, oh, is he going to make it? You know, I was like, do you, do you guys want to play? They're like, no, it's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> so it's that time again. Let's head over to Tenby to see what Minty's least favorite sequel is. Hello again, everyone. I'm still here in a better place. A sequel, to me, becomes incredibly bad when it takes everything that made a game before it great, tosses it aside and says no. We shall not be doing this again. It does not matter that we now have a record of what every single loudmouth loves and hates about this game series by virtue of the internet. We're going to create something in isolation, with no regard for the mechanics, the characters, the story, the gameplay that our fans care about. Paper Mario Stick a Star is a prime example of this. Compelling story? Gone. A roster of partners with their own unique character arcs and compulsions and gameplay mechanics. Gone. A decent battle system that actually makes you stronger. Gone. Good game mechanics. Gone. Oh, but there are real-life things that you can slap down like a massive rotating fan or a bowling ball to really drive a nail into your butt as the door of enjoyment is slammed on you. It's a points game, and I hate it. How about you, Will? What uh, what do you think is a is a is a crap sequel? So now I am going to talk about Dead Space Three. <laughs> okay, here we go. Here we go. For me, it's like the distilled essence of of a bad sequel. Like all the parts are there. It's it's technically speaking well put together. There's no game killing bugs in it, but it it sort of does it does everything wrong and is a horrible way to apparently end a trilogy because I don't think there's been any other Dead Space full game yeah, since not. Dead Space 3. And I think like the, uh, the among some of, one of the worst things it does is it just sort of betrays the the legacy of the series because you know the, the very first Dead Space and much of the second you know it's it's all about sort of being isolated in this terrifying environment you don't know where the threats are coming from. By the time we get to, to Dead Space 3 it's just not even a horror game anymore. Mm. It is just a third person shooter. They don't, they barely make any attempt to try to scare you or unnerve you. Uh, and anytime they, they, there's something that should be scary. It's just kind of gross. Like one of the more interesting ideas is there's this like giant alien monster that like archeologists dug out of a glacier and you have to like cut into its body and like go through its organs for part of the game. And, that should be scary, but instead it's just gross. <laughs> and then there's also a lot a lot of sort of like lazy game design. There are some amazing environments in the game, but you can always tell they ran out of ideas because <laughs> what's going to happen to you in this environment? Oh, they'll just throw a whole bunch of zombies at you all at once. <laughs> and that keeps happening. And, and it's just not fun. It's not frightening. It doesn't increase any it doesn't increase any tension. And another thing is like in the first game, you know, you play uh the 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 cleverly named Isaac Clark, this like to engineer mm. and in the first game he never speaks like at most you hear him breathing and that really helps not only you know grow the feeling of isolation and horror but it makes it really easy to put yourself into Isaac's shoes so when Isaac is under threat you do get that jolt of excitement or fear 
Well, they let Isaac start talking in the second game. By the third <laughs> game, he's just a quipping machine. Oh, God. Oh, you hate to see it. You hate to see it. Oh, yeah. Whenever he speaks, it just drains all the tension out of the scene. Okay, I'm going to say it did do one thing surprisingly well. But it feels like it belongs in a whole different game. Very early on, you find this like drone that you repair. And the drone just becomes your little buddy. Like you can send it out into the environment to look for treasure and you can pick the drone up later in the level to get some good, good items. But again, it feels like something it's, it's a great part of the game. You end up caring more about that drone than you care about any of the other characters in the game. <laughs> it's the most human relationship. And it's with this little like spider laptop that hunts for treasure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the thing is like, I, I don't mind like a, uh... Like we mentioned at the start, just in passing, Aliens as a as a really good sequel. Aliens is not a good horror film though. It is a fantastic action film though. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. and and it's so I wouldn't I wouldn't mind if games did that. If like I mean, it's it's where like the Doom games have gone now because Doom games that were a bit slower and tense, but now it's just you literally can't shoot your gun fast enough. But it's a fantastic <laughs> action experience, you know. Yeah. I never played Dead Space three. I had Dead Space one and Dead Space two, and I'm I'm I always hoped that there would be like a trilogy remaster of it at some point and i could finally play the third one but perhaps perhaps maybe i'm better off letting that one letting that one be my last comment on the game may may, may seal the deal and just <laughs> a sidebar on the drone one of the best things about the first game is that resources were scarce you could mm. never it was impossible to get enough power nodes to both upgrade all your equipment and open all the secret doors and so those heartbreaking choices with the power nodes were amazing. By the time you have the drone hunting for treasure, you're never without <laughs> a resource you need. But the the thing that truly infuriated me that caused multiple problems in the game is there was an arbitrary tacked on online element. There were sections of the game you could not access unless you were playing online two-player. You, you could be exploring a derelict spaceship and be like, ooh, now I want to explore the starboard side of this spaceship. And then you go to the airlock that adds gives you access to the starboard side. A little thing comes up. You cannot access this part of the ship unless you're playing online two-player. <laughs> so there's content you paid for you do not get. That's awful. To the best of my knowledge, there was never a patch that lets you play that one player. But the other thing that's just mind-boggling. So again, so much of the previous games are about isolation. But since there's this online two-player aspect, they keep having another character that is your number two that keeps showing up even when that makes no goddamn sense. Like, multiple times in the game, like, I'm attacked by a monster, and then this other character comes in, oh, you've been following me the whole time? <laughs> yes, you have. And he says something and then goes off because nobody's playing him. And it's so bizarre. That's really, really poor. I mean, that's, again, another example of, like, of going, oh, what we need to do is have more of, of stuff in here, but without any actual thinking about how that how that might work or how that might feel or, or you know, affect the player experience. Yeah, I'll give that one a miss. Give that one a miss. As for me, I mean, obviously, there's plenty of crap sequel games. X versus Sever Ballistic, a simultaneous sequel and movie <laughs> tie-in game. Obviously, that was crap. For me, like, the, the games that, that, that feel the worst aren't necessarily the worst games, but they're the ones that disappoint the most. Yeah. Like, I remember, in terms of films, I remember being so excited to see Spider-Man 3. And <laughs> Spider-Man 3 isn't the worst film ever made, but compared to what I wanted it to be and my expectations of it, my goodness, was it, it was so, so bad. So, so, so bad. So for me, the game that I've been most disappointed with is Prince of Persia Warrior Within, which was the follow-up to Prince of Persia Sands of Time, uh. which did make an appearance on my list as my 41st favourite video game of all time. Trivia. One for the diehards. <laughs> so, like, with Warrior Within, the developers <laughs> sought to make the game... I mean, it's just so. I mean, it's so obvious now what all sequels try and do is they try to make it grittier and bigger and darker and gnarlier and altogether more expansive. Unfortunately, in doing that, it totally compromised the integrity of the game's performance. Now, I was playing this on on the GameCube, and one of the great things about Sands of Time was that it it was right at the at the top of uh, what the GameCube was capable of, but it never exceeded it, which gave you like a really silky smooth experience. It felt seamless, it felt glossy and gorgeous, and you never thought about its performance because you were never you were never given anything to have have any doubts about. It didn't didn't wobble of any kind. 
But in adding a bunch of like dark and shadowy particle effects, like making the environments bigger, making the prince fight with two weapons instead of one, and like you could also now like steal weapons off your enemy instead of, you know, like a conveniently simplistically animated single sword, and you could do like some sand blast effects as well. It all just got quite choppy. <laughs> and that meant that the, the smoothness and seamlessness of the first game, which is what made it so enjoyable to like, you know, run and slide and jump and fight across the kingdom. That was totally gone. And so what you were left with was just a really average third person action game. And it was just, it was such, it was such a shame because I mean, I I happily played through Sands of Time three, four, five, six times. Like by the end, I could complete it in about three hours, maybe something like that, because it was so fun to play. And I thought, great, the game doesn't need to do anything. It doesn't need to make it bigger or darker or more particly or whatever. It just needs to give me more of that, please. You know, something that was just slightly different to the first one, because I'm happy enough just playing to do the first one over and over, to be honest. But yeah, it was just a real shame. It was just a real flipping shame. That's that's what it was. <laughs> that's what it was. And I mean, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that the remaster of Sands of Time that's coming out this year will be, well, for one, I hope it's going to be good for a start. Who knows? If it's good, hopefully that will set them up to properly present Warrior Within and the Two Thrones. Hopefully they might remaster those and, and we'll, we'll, you know, we might get to see them have a bit of a chance to, to shine in the sun. But I mean, yeah, it was just a, you know what it was? It was a shame. <laughs> I anticipate that that remaster will be bad. Yeah, I have a feeling it's going to be a bad remaster. Yeah, I think it's going to be glitch. It's going to be like 13 when that came oh, out recently. God, yeah, yeah. I, I remember that. Wee. There were so many games I played on my Mac, like my Apple growing up, you know, Sensory Overload, freaking Marathon, Wolfenstein. And um, I used to love, love, love the Prince of Persia. The, there was only two for a long time. Mm. Prince of Persia, what was the second one? The Shadow and the Flame, which was an awesome. Great title. Awesome game. 93, I think it came out. Oy, oy, oy. And of all the, or Mist, all those like other games that were popular on Apple. And I, I remember when Sands of Time came out, I'm like, whoa, Prince of Persia is still like, in the conversation of video games? What's going on here? Because <laughs> I just thought this was like this weird little Mac game that I played as a kid. I, I didn't know other people like it became a thing and yeah it's still a thing which is wild and now a word from our sponsor and now a word from our sponsor and now a word from our sponsor hey lassie what are you doing here timmy's in a well sequel cast two and friends is a podcast looking at movies in a franchise one film at a time like harry potter hellraiser and the hobbit and sometimes the hosts talk about video games and tv as well and now it's part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. Oh, Lassie, we don't need to rescue Timmy. He likes the well well enough, I guess. Darth Vader is Luke's father. Lassie, I told you to lay off the spoilers. So the time has come to look to the future, and we've had a bit of a think about games that we'd we'd love to see more of, and games that maybe have already had sequels, but we think actually it could go somewhere else or games that just have never had a sequel that we think really, really deserve one. So to kick us off, Chris, would you please pitch us a sequel to a game? I would like Outrun 3, please. Ah, yeah. Because I've had both the original Outrun and its sequel on my list already. It's one of the only franchises where I had both as separate entries and I just want more. Yeah. (laughs) Like a new arcade game would be great. It's not going to happen, but it would be great. But equally, I, I just think, take OutRun, give it to the boys at Sumo, who did the home conversion of OutRun 2 for all platforms, because they they really know their onions. They make good racing games, <laughs> and they did all the good Sonic racing games. They did the recent Hot Shots racing that I talked about in the podcast not that long ago. They can make a throwback arcade racer that stands up, even if it's presented as being a sort of canonical sequel to the established greats like OutRun. I think they would do it proper justice. But I do think it would have to be something very different because the second game is very different to the first. And and I think I'd want the third to be similar. Like, it's still a racing game, obviously, but that it focused on something else. Because the first game was very much about the, the sense of journey. The second game is all about just endless drifting. It needs something that's still driving in a, in a unique and interesting way. Open world. Open world, yeah, I guess. Be like Test Drive Unlimited. That was a good game. But anyway, that's <laughs> off, off topic. I, I just want the third to do something different. But just have, you know, the, the feeling of driving at its heart. And, and I think they are, they would be equipped to do that. So yeah, Sega, make, make me happy. 
<laughs> Stop giving me Ball and Wonder World. <laughs> Stop publishing shit. <laughs> Will, how about you? Uh, why don't you pitch us a game that uh, that you would love to see? All right. So one of my favorite games of all time is Okami. Ooh. Oh yeah. Okami did have a, a sequel, uh, Okami Den, for the uh, Nintendo DS. Yeah. What, what was that? Because I I was never sure whether or not that was like just a condensed version of the original or like a side story or something was it oh no it, it's actually it's actually very sweet you you play the children of the characters of the first game so you're like this little you start out as a little boy who's a descendant of Susano and the woman who makes the sake and instead of having Amaterasu it's like a pup it's oh, like this wolf pup that's invested in, with her I'm power <laughs> that's it I'm getting it now it really is adorable, but one of the features is that in this one, the boy is riding on the puppy. So, like, you do things together. So you actually do some, like, platformer action with combat with, like, the kid riding on your back. But then you still do all the stuff with the magic brush. But overall, like, it, it is kind of more of the same. You interact with the world the same way. It has the same look. And it tells a similar kind of story. Although it is fun that in different parts of the game, you do swap out riders and other children of other characters will, will ride on the puppy, the wolf pup's back. The two things that, that I love so much about Okami, aside from everything, <laughs> is that uh, just the look of it, just the fact that it looks like a living ink wash painting on rice paper that, that has come to life and that you interact with it with a brush and that it, it is quintessentially Japanese. So for me to do my Okami sequel, we will take another quintessentially Japanese art form and apply Okami to it. So take everything you know about Okami, but now it's set in the 1970s and it's done in the visual style of a 1970s manga. Ooh. Oh, Ooh. Hmm. oh, yeah, yeah, and like there's, <laughs> and there's there's some supernatural threat that's like bringing in the yakuza, so you can do yakuza stuff, and like all the villains are are themed to be references to antagonistic characters in manga in the seventies. And what's great about set putting it in the seventies is that people like Osamu Tezuka, like the the real founders of modern manga, are still alive and still producing great material. But then you also have people like Go Nagai who are now coming into their own power. And so, like, like the old and the new of that era will be represented in the game. But also, we'll still bring back the brush. Only now, instead of doing, like, environmental effects, you're using the brush to, like, bring in elements of manga. So, like, you can draw speed lines on the page, and oh, that gives you, like, a time acceleration effect. That's great. Yeah, and, like, you can even, like, write <laughs> in sound effects. And you can get, like... So, like, if, like, you attack a character, and right when the punch lands or, or whatever the attack is... And you bring down the brush and you put in the kanji for like don, like a big punch sound effect. It makes your attack more powerful. So you're doing manga art stuff in in this this world, like a mashup between Beautiful Joe and Scribblenauts. I, I was yeah, just exactly. I was just thinking Beautiful Joe because the one on the DS you were using the touchscreen to to draw the VFX effects. Ah, I never played that one in the end. It was okay. <laughs> it, w- it wouldn't be on a best sequels list. I'll say that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean that sounds that sounds great. I I I'd buy that. Let's get it made then. Let's just yeah, make it happen. Easy. <laughs> I'm sure Clover can can reform and put me in charge of a project. Yeah. You know what? Let's aim big. <laughs> I mean, I would love to. I mean, I'd love to see Beautiful Joe three <laughs> while we're talking about that. I'd love to see a sequel to Bloodborne. I'd love to see a sequel to Sekiro. I'd love to see a Knights game in VR. And there's, I mean, there's loads of games, obviously, I'd love to see, you know, outside of the big, big franchises like, you know, Zelda and Mario, you know, I, I know I'm going to get another one of those at some point or Pokemon. I mean, to, to be honest, if we if we'd have recorded this a year ago, I think a sequel I wanted to see more than anything would have been a new Pokemon Snap. Yeah, and, and it's coming out in a couple of weeks. Uh, it literally, it's literally coming out in five days' time. Is that what it is? I've got a pre-order, yeah. but I, I didn't know it was that soon. <laughs> I'm, I'm just hoping. I'm. Re- I know that it's not going to, but I really hope that it's got functionality with the Labo VR camera, oh. um, which is 
it feels so much better. I mean, all of, I mean, to be honest, all of the VR Labo stuff worked a lot better than I thought it would. Yeah, it did. Um, which, which, to be honest, doesn't actually say much because it looks like it's going to be a terrible experience, but it's really good fun. But yeah, if if they somehow build an integration with the camera, oh my goodness, it's this one of the. I think it's going to be the first game I'm going to actively play with uh, motion controls on because usually I would just turn motion controls off on anything I'm doing, yeah. like a, you know, unless it's. Ring Fit Adventure although to be honest I did try <laughs> I mean there's 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 games that have almost had sequels that that is always devastating when you when you hear about a project that was almost like the the like while well, we've been talking about Alien the unmade version of Alien 3 which I think actually got like a uh, a radio adaptation in the last few years where the original idea was that like Ripley lands on a, a on a planet that's made entirely out of wood and it's an, it's a one big monastery and it's like you hear about things like that and you just think oh my god I'd love to have seen that I'd love to have seen that and there was there was a, a sequel being developed for Eternal Darkness called Shadow of the Eternals and it, like it was going to expand on the mythos of the original it looked amazing it sounded incredible but then it had a fail a couple of failed Kickstarter attempts and now it looks like it's going to stay dead but a game that I think deserves a sequel that I think just deserves expanding or at least just revisiting for its world and gameplay to grow and modernize. And the only thing I come back to is Panzer Dragoon Saga. Um, me and Chris spoke about this game when it appeared on both of our lists in consecutive weeks yeah. in like the, I don't know, the twenties um, somewhere. And we both ended up replaying the entire game before talking about it, which was actually a bit of a mistake. In, in, I mean, because usually, like, I often have a fear that if I revisit an old game, I go, oh, actually, you know what? It really doesn't hold up. But with Panzer Dragoon Saga, it was the opposite. And we both went, oh, God, this is far too low on our list. This is so good. This is so good. And I mean, I said back then, I mean, I've said it many times in the past to anyone who listened that I'd love a, a proper remake of the game. But we know that the, the source code for that game is, is, is long gone. So we're never going to see like a quick remaster or even like a port of it. But when I was replaying it, my brain was just going off on a massive one and thinking of all the ways like the game and the world could be expanded because there's so much history and lore in this world. You could easily see like an entire prequel to the game, exploring some of the events that are hinted at in the game. Yeah. Or see like an entire sequel to the game or a side pull to the game, <laughs> like seeing what else was going on in the world at the time of the events of Saga. Or it could be what I think it should be is just a, a bulked out version of the original game, which has events leading up to it. And then the actual events of the original game take place in the middle of the game. So actually it's sort of, you know, packaging it around bigger stuff and making the whole thing big and the world be just bigger. And I mean, the, I would say like more alive, but not with people because it's very sparse and that's yeah, something that's yeah. very, very special. But like in some of the areas you go to and you get a sense of like the, um, the, like the wildlife that's there, that's still there, like having more of a sense of that. I literally just this morning played through Abzu. And so I want, I want fish everywhere. That's what I want <laughs> in, in, in all games. <laughs> Wherever I go, I want fish to follow. That's, that's my current thing. I mean, I look at like what they've done with the remake of Final Fantasy VII and taken, an, you know, the original game and just made it enormous <laughs> just built on it in every way and i mean i just i want panzer dragoon saga to panzer dragoon sagas no panzer dragoon <laughs> panzer, panzer panzers dragoons no i don't know i don't know what it'd be called it doesn't matter i want it i want it in 4k i want it on my ps5 i want it now um I, i'll be honest i'm constantly livid that i don't have it i think what they should do if they were actually gonna sort of green like that project do it as a, a big 4K thing, but do it as Sega Saturn low poly and, and grubby textures. Ooh, Be, because because a lot of games are like just starting now. We're, we're kind of, we're coming out the other side of the obsession with like the 8-bit pixel art stuff. Yeah. And, and there's been a few indie games which touch on that, you know, leaning back into the, the warping textures of the PlayStation 1 and the Saturn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like our 90s clothes are cool again. Right. Yeah, but but to kind of take <laughs> take what is a, a AAA game at this stage, if it was going to be a you know a big Sega production again. Like Ball and Wonderworld. <laughs> like, just like Ball and Wonderworld. <laughs> but, but put in that in the design document, really actually play mm. to that. I think it could look really unique and, and really, mm. really stand out as an example of not just something that is meant to look like it is on a PlayStation or, or a Saturn, something that is just really leaning into that as if that was always the aesthetic of that world. Mm. Because the, the monsters in Panzer and Saga 
are fantastic because they they all look like actual abominations. Yeah, they do because you don't know where they where they start, where they begin, what's their mouth, what's their arsehole. Like because <laughs> <laughs> you got because you've got them, they like things burst out of them and come yeah, out of areas. And you think, I don't know. I don't. I'm not even confident which end that came out of. You know, <laughs> like how you feel after a good curry. <laughs> so for one last time let's hand it over to minty to see what video game sequel his tender little head has cooked up for us hello everyone minty here speaking to you again from a better place i have been gifted with the knowledge of what makes a good sequel and i'm ready to speak my idea of a good sequel into being i really hope that tom nintendo or barbara xbox is listening the world's great pastime as we have seen in the news recently is football. Oh, the fervour that defends it from economically corpulent swine. A game by the people and for the people. We've seen this in such games as FIFA 18, FIFA 19, FIFA 20. We see them tighten game mechanics, tweak graphics, bring in upcoming players, polish training exercises, but what's next for this beautiful game? Well, the answer lies in the name of the sequel. Football 2. Two footballs. Think of it in terms of video games. Breakout, multi-ball is a power-up. Peggle, multi-ball is a power-up. Give it a what the golf twist. I dare you. And I'm waiting. Goodbye, everyone. Alex, why don't you finish this section off? What is a... Pitch us a sequel. Pitch us a sequel that we want to play. Turok got mentioned earlier, and I think that was the first 64 game we actually had. Maybe I overthink things, or maybe partially. Um, my mother's Native American, and I thought the concept was very strange because you have Native dude who is traveling dimensions and killing dinosaurs and uh, an extinct species of animal. It just seemed like a little counterintuitive. So <laughs> I thought it would be interesting if we if we flip the script a little bit. So Turok gets his DNA crossed with a dinosaur. In traveling time, what we have is a reptilian-human hybrid uh. who's bent on destroying humans. What you do is that you have uh, a human-hunting, sentient reptilian hybrid hopping from dimensions and time periods, basically trying to rack up as many uh, human tallies as you can. <laughs> but since, since you're time traveling, you get dumped at Times Square. You get dumped at like you know the Bastille in the 1700s. Or you get dumped <laughs> in like an Antarctic dimension, and you have to like survive and shit. So yeah. It, a time-traveling, dimension-shifting, human-reptilian hybrid hunter game. <laughs> if Ubisoft <laughs> developed it, they they just need to pull out all of the environments from every Assassin's Creed game and just chuck a bunch of lizards in them. Yeah, yeah, easy. there you go. Yeah, you're good. That'd be uh, that's a quick buck for you there if you're listening, Ubisoft. <laughs> if you're listening, of course you're listening, Ubisoft. Of course you're paying into Patreon. <laughs> So there we have it. I uh, hope you've enjoyed our discussion of all things sequels. It's been a huge pleasure to be joined by Alex and Will from the Sequelcast podcast. Thank you very much, chaps. Yeah, thanks for having us. Oh, you're welcome. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that via all kinds of places. Engage with us on social media, facebook.com slash r3cents, Instagram at O3C Podcast. We've got a YouTube channel. You can go to YouTube and search for r3cents and you'll find all of our video content there. We sometimes stream live on Twitch at O3C Podcast. Or you can reach out to us individually. You can take us to task on our opinions. Tell us what sequels you love. Tell us, you know what, tell us what sequels you don't love. But more than that, tell us what sequels there should be because you know if, if these suggestions are anything to go by i want to hear more i want to hear more <laughs> of these you can reach me on twitter at jonathan dunn you can shout at me at chaz underscore hodges and i believe you can follow minty on twitter at clement underscore boo Alex and Will, if people want to get in touch with you, what is the best way to do that? Well, you could follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. And you can follow me on Twitter at CrabNebula1914. Also, our other host for the sequel cast, and in fact, the founder and creator of the sequel cast, Matt, who could not make it today, if you want to follow him on Twitter, you can follow him on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. You can, of course, find Sequel Cast 2 on the Greenlit Podcast Network or just type SequelCast2.com into whatever interface you're using, and that should take you. <laughs> right to our site i can't recommend the podcast highly enough it is it's really really good fun and uh, much like ours it uh, it take, takes takes an excellent attitude towards uh, some 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 films that, that that may have flown under your radar or perhaps have been eclipsed by no they couldn't they couldn't be eclipsed by their first film could they 
What's the opposite of an eclipse? Hmm. A, a big reveal. Uh, yes. <laughs> a, a different eclipse? <laughs> if you are interested in video game movies, so we covered the Mortal Kombat movies in the past because there's a new Mortal Kombat movie. Oh, yeah. Our next movie is going to be the new Mortal Kombat. Oh, fantastic. I, I'm so hyped to see that. And I don't even care if it's crap. <laughs> I just I just can't wait for it. I can't wait for it. And please do join us next week where Chris will be kicking off our sixth favourite video games of all time by telling you what he thinks statistically is better than no I don't know how many video games there are so I can't tell you I was gonna I was gonna I just thought I could conjure the number of video games there are and minus six that's what I thought I could do then idiot you take one cent you take two cents you take three cents and there you have all three cents and now a word from our sponsor Video Death Loop is a podcast where we watch a short video clip on loop until we just can't take it anymore. Along the way, we'll try our best to make each other laugh and to hold out longer than the other guy. You can jump in on any episode, no need to worry about continuity. Check out Video Death Loop on the Greenlit Podcast Network with new episodes every Friday.